I have to admit, it's, it's always really weird to see my work so beautifully framed and hung, <laughs> because I'm used to seeing it in the galleries of magazines and newspapers, primarily. So this is a little weird. And uh, it's great. It's a great honor to be here. And I'm, al I'm also so happy that the Portrait Gallery has been a champion of caricature as a, as a form of uh, portraiture. Caricature is one of those things that is it's a little bit misunderstood. It's actually kind of hard to explain and describe. And I, I think it's a little hard to understand, too. People either think of caricature as the work of Daumier and, and people like that, or they think of caricature as the work of political cartoonists, or they think of caricature as the five-minute thing you get done at the, you know, at the theme park. And uh, it can be all of those things, so it makes it a little bit misunderstood. But I'd like to talk a little about caricature in general, uh, and then I'll talk specifically about these two things. And if anybody has any questions as we go along, please jump right in, because I'd, I'd much rather get into a discussion than a monologue. And you'd probably like that a little better, too. So. Maybe I'll start by anticipating one question that I, that I get asked a lot, which is, I'm about to horrify Wendy, who <laughs> hates me traveling and handling, traveling with originals and handling them. I don't have my, um, but a question I get asked frequently is, uh, when you look at people, do you, really, do you really see them like this? And it's kind of a hard question to answer because, you know, yes, yes and no. I don't really know how other people, how other people see the world. Um, and to some extent, I guess I do see people like that. You know, when, I'm, when we're having a conversation and I'm getting a little less interested in what we're talking about, I, you know, it's sort, of, it, it's sort of like those magic eye books where you stare at the thing and, and suddenly something else starts taking shape. Your face starts getting longer, your smile gets wider, eyes angle up a little bit. So I, I've had this instinct, as long as I can remember, really, where I, I'd look at someone and drawings would be underway while I was talking to them. Um, my interest in caricature specifically, I can trace back to when I was very young and I did impersonations of people. I was always the kid that would walk behind people, imitating their walks. In my family, I'd imitate um, how, the how family members talk. And that in, I always had this, this instinct to try to slip into people's skins. And, you know, I suppose there's, a, there's some psychological component there of a, of a kid or certainly an adolescent just wanting to make sense of the world a bit and try to control it a bit. And so imitating people and then gra eventually doing these drawn impersonations of people was somehow a way of almost like an actor understanding people, and uh, I think it made the world a more hospitable place for me as a creative kid who didn't always know how to fit in. So I can trace my interest in caricature back to that, those sorts of motivations. The first drawn caricatures I did were of the nuns in my Catholic grade school. Uh, anybody that went to Catholic grade school would understand why I wanted to do that. But I, I did a nun a month calendar <clears throat> it was a pinup. <laughs> it was a pinup calendar featuring, you know, Sister Mary January, Sister Mary February, and they were in some pretty exotic positions. One of the nuns uh, had a 
feather duster. She was in a little French maid's outfit. I didn't want to be disrespectful, so that whatever clothing they were wearing was Franciscan black and white. <laughs> so. Thank you, Ann. Thanks a lot. But that, uh, that pinup calendar of the nuns was very popular with, with the students. And one day I was being passed around the room, <clears throat> and the teacher of the, of the homeroom, uh, this was about seventh grade, Mrs. Kippers, she was not a nun, by the way, this is important, and, and she saw a commotion happening, and she came over, and without missing a beat, she kept teaching, she grabbed the calendar, didn't look at it, kept teaching, walked over to her desk, put it in the drawer, closed it, and kept on teaching. Well, for days, I didn't eat, I couldn't sleep. I mean, it started dawning on me, this was really bad. And, you know, some of the drawings were pretty graphic, and I, my father was on the school board, and it started sinking in that this, was, this could be bad trouble. But the most amazing thing happened, something more mind-blowing than anything I could have imagined. Nothing happened. Nothing at all. And not being punished was the same as being rewarded. And I kind of got hooked. I realized this was a way that you could make observations that were, in their way, honest, not always welcome. I could express myself, and I would get positive feedback for it. It's kind of the trifecta, you know? <clears throat> so I was a bit hooked on that. About the same time, then I started doing, uh, I started doing comic books about my family, and come on in. <clears throat> and these uh, uh, these comics were, I don't know what to say about them. I, they weren't exactly mean spirited, but they said things in you know, graphically, that if I had said in the family, I would have been certainly punished for. But in this format, you know, oh, you know, they were so delighted. And uh, anyway, the point I'm trying to make is that th these are the early things that kind of got me hooked on caricature as a way of expressing myself, being honest, and getting positive approval for it. <clears throat> and it led to a, a career path that, that, you know, has ended up here and, and in the, in the sort of work I do. Um, when I draw a caricature, obviously, you know, a major feature of this kind of work is isolating the unique parts of a person's face and figuring out what is most uh, indicative of that person and then exaggerating it. It doesn't always mean making things bigger. You know, in this case, it's actually about making, <clears throat> making things smaller. The shape of the head is something that seems very massive, so that has to be amplified. But then in, contra in contrast to the shape of the head, the rest of the features have to become smaller. So whatever's most indicative, most emblematic of that individual becomes more so. A lot of people think caricature is a negative art form. And I don't, I don't see it that way. I don't think of these things as distortions so much as amplifications. And there's a big difference. I'm not just applying distortion for the sake of making a nasty picture, my early nun uh, drawings notwithstanding. I, I never start out trying to make an unfavorable picture. I'm not even that, I'm not even that aware of 
trying to make a funny picture. For all of the humor involved in these things, to me they're portraits and there's something very objective about the observations. As far as I know, I'm making simply observations and not judgments. Jim. Do you make them with some humor in mind? Do you want people to laugh? You know, I, honestly, I'm not really that aware of it. I think that uh, putting things in a humorous context, is, it's a part of who I am personally, so it's certainly my, it's my way. And because of the work I've done for three decades as a, as a satirist and a cultural caricaturist, that is a part of my work. So, but it's not something I really think about. I don't think, oh, this would be hilarious. Now, sometimes, and I, you know, some ideas are more clever than others, but I really do try to, really do try to let the subject of the piece lead the way to the solution. You know, this drawing of Donald Trump, you know, as a windbag going off, um, he kind of led me to that solution. It's not just me wanting to be funny and, and somehow making his, him as a subject bend to this idea that I've had. I didn't have this idea until I started studying his face and, and realized that he looked a lot like an inflated balloon. And, you know, that, that's a point I, I really would like to, to make, and I'll talk a little more about it when I get into these. Uh, for me, the portrait comes first. The subject has to lead the way. I don't want to impose my idea and, and make, it, make it fit. I'm not a political cartoonist in that sense. My work's much more about what these people have to say about themselves rather than what I think about them. It's much more interesting. You know, we, we all project public images, but there's something behind the unique way that we appear publicly. And the real aim is to try to glimpse beneath what's on the outside to what's underneath informing all of that. I'll give you an example of that using myself as, as an example. Um, on my face, I have a line, I have a line uh, here that's stronger on this side than on this side. Can everybody see that? Okay. <laughs> So if I'm drawing a caricature of myself, this might be one of the small details that I magnify. I also am starting to get rounded shoulders, and that's something that I would notice and start to magnify. I may not know why those things are the way they are, but I observe them and put them in so that cumulatively all of those observed details add up to uh, a deeper likeness. But all of those things also tell a story. Every, every nuance of outward appearance tells a little something about how life has impacted us. In the case of this line, I sleep on my left side because this nostril works better. <laughs> it's not an important thing to know, but you know we get etched, we get shaped and sculpted by important and trivial things in our lives so that our faces actually become roadmaps to our experience, profound experience and mundane experience. My rounded shoulders speak to how I spend most of my days hunched over a drawing board. Now, I can tell this guy is an avid tennis and golf golfer. <laughs> and, and do you know how I can tell that? Because I've, I've known Paul for 20 years. <laughs> and Anyway. He does stand <laughs> So, um, I think I've covered the basics. 
Um, I want to talk about these just a little bit. It's, it's really fun to see these again because I haven't seen them in a while. Um, I'm trying to remember who I did this for. I think this was for um, Business Week. And I don't have my glasses, so I actually can't read what's on the label. Okay, thanks. This is how I, I found this and brought it, just so you could see. This is what it looks like in print. Um, you know, my individual pieces always end up being compromised by the deadlines I have to work under for publications and then also how it is that they're reproduced. Um, so part of what goes into image making for me is trying to second guess, second guess how, how it's going to look reproduced on newsprint or magazine, or a newsprint or magazine stock or on a billboard or, you know, lighted if it's for something online. So a lot of those things inform my media choices and that kind of thing. But uh, anyway, when I did this for Business Week, the story was a, it was a profile of Greenspan, and it seems like a, a million years ago, but this, he, this was at a time when the economy was roaring, and he was presiding over... <clears throat> He was presiding over the uh, Federal Reserve at that time, and he was seen as a soothsayer and a sage and someone that, you know, literally an, a raised eyebrow could move markets. So a lot of you probably remember when he would testify before Congress, they'd parse everything he said for, you know, exact words, inflections, what does he mean? But he was really seen as this, this almost kind of mystical character um, and he was almost single-handedly credited with keeping the economy on, on course. Um, in recent years, he's, you know, he's acknowledged that that really wasn't, wasn't so much the case. He just kind of presided over things that happened. And he's faulted now for missing a few things. But at that time, this really was very much his public image. And when I was uh, commissioned to do this drawing to accompany the written profile of him... I started, as I always do, by familiarizing myself with the subject. I was very well aware of who he was in the news and what his public image was, but I went to photographs, I went to uh, television, videotape at that time. This was before I could go to YouTube and, and check out image, uh, film of him. But uh, basically what I try to do when I start a project is simulate a life drawing situation. I want to learn as much as I can about the person visually and also study, study up on them. So I assemble as many pictures as possible from all angles, including the back of the head, which gives a tremendous amount of information. And what I was finding in the photos of him uh, was a lot of support for the common public perception of him as someone who looked above it all. He, you know, he, it, it matched the public perception. It, it's not always the case. But I was finding in detail after detail this expression of confidence, serenity. He was kind of remote. And so in this case, the subject was leading me in the direction that I kind of expected to go based on his public image. So as a caricaturist, some of the details I was looking at and then magnified... Obviously, the features, large nose, kind of this bulb-shaped head, the thinning hair, which was especially fun and beautiful to paint in this case. Um, but 
the hooded eyes, the, the, the hooded eyelids, they concealed his eyes so that you can't really make eye contact with him easily. There's not a, a glimmer in the eyes, so there's not a lot of life, and he just looks, it makes him look distant. You know, and when I'm drawing, a lot of times I find myself you know, making the expressions that I'm drawing and kind of feel the person, and it becomes almost a little like channeling them. Um, I, I often think of method acting where you you learn the motivations of the person and then do a performance. Uh, sometimes I find myself talking well or badly like the person, going back to my early interest in impersonation. So uh, the expression, you know, it also kind of suggests something about someone who's not superior exactly, but very serene and confident. I was also very aware while I was doing this of using horizontal lines in the composition to underscore that feeling of calmness, staticness, serenity. The mouth is straight across. Actually, his mouth is a little bit more of a M shape, and I leveled it out. These lines, even though they are M shaped, are very, you know, they're concentric in, in a horizontal way. His face is aligned very horizontally. There's a horizontal line here, the clouds, etc. You can see it. So those kinds of compositional choices um, aren't accidental. They're sometimes a little bit unconscious, but I do know that I make these choices in order to support what I'm trying to do with the portrait. Uh, the whole piece becomes about uh, capturing the likeness. Even something like, where is the light source? I could put that light source anywhere. I'm the director of this play. I put it over here to throw his face in shadow to increase that sense of him being someone whose thoughts are known only to himself. He's, he's a little bit hidden. He's under that veil of shadow. So all of those things go into a caricature. Now, this one, you know, just by way of contrasting, it might have been nice to have... Uh, an African-American woman, you know, of film or stage. But these are two financial guys. I guess that's why they're here together. They're, they're, they're two white guys about the same age. So in a sense, they kind of seem like, they kind of seem like similar people. But they, they do provide a good opportunity to contrast some of the nuances of caricature. I started with Buffett in the same way I started with Greenspan, like I do all assignments. This one I did for the Wall Street Journal. It, is about, uh, it was a profile of Warren Buffett. And I gathered as many photos as I could of him, tried to learn his face, tried to see if it matched my uh, perception of him. And in this case, Warren Buffett was somebody that I always really liked. What I knew about him was 99% of his income was earmarked for charity going back several years. He drives himself around, which is really unheard of for people like this. He's lived in the same house in Omaha, Nebraska for 60 years. Um, he pads around the house in sweatpants. His favorite food is cheeseburgers. He likes to play bridge. I mean, this guy's impossibly accessible and seemingly normal, whatever that means, for somebody of his stature. So I might have expected, if I were coming to a caricature with, you know, with pre preconceptions of how I wanted to depict him, I might have expected to make him a grandfather or a kindly uncle or someone like that.
But in photo after photo of him, even the ones where he was smiling, I noticed this hardness, this steeliness, this flintiness. And it was very strange. I mean, the the more I looked, the images were almost off-putting. And it didn't match my feelings about him, my opinion of him. So unlike this one, where I found support for the public perception of the subject, in this one, the subject, as I got to know the person as they are reflecting, as they are communicating themselves through their features, I was taken in a different direction. Someone very, you know, kind of forbidding, off-putting. There's a weightiness to this one that you don't see here. So compositionally, you know, rather than just, in in addition to um, getting the right facial features in the right order and doing what I do as a caricaturist, some of the compositional ways that I underscored that was by tipping his head slightly. This is not a horizontal thing. It's subtly confrontational. You know, they both have glasses. These glasses are very thick to add to that weightiness. The light source is from the top, like a, you know, a backroom deal or a, or a card table, you know, and literally holding cards close is, a, is a, an obvious uh, metaphor for this kind of a, a personality. Um, now, his eyes are making direct eye contact with us. You can see it, if, if, you know, if you're a little closer. And I work very hard at trying to get the eyes so that they were making eye contact, but not really looking at you, more looking through you. And so each little detail like that becomes its own miniature caricature. You know, what do, uh, un- what do unruly eyebrows look like? What do eyes look like that look through you? Uh, what do, you know, what do earlobes look like? Each of these things become their own small caricatures that add up to more than the sum of the parts. So even in something like an earlobe, you can get a sense, these guys have very different looking ears, but um, this one has sort of a lightness about it that again, adds to the overall feel of this as someone floating. This has a heaviness to it. It hangs and it reinforces the light source, the whole sense of this as an authority figure. Here we've got someone who uh, is very clearly in, in control because he has knowledge. Here's someone who's in control because he has power, authority. This person understands the big picture. This person owns it. So I just wanted to give some sense of how some of the less obvious things that go into image making contribute to and support likeness. And that's, my, that's always my bottom line with an assignment. Even if it has humor or an editorial slant, What I'm really all about with this work is uh, portraiture. John, what kind of information does the back of the head give you when you're looking at photographs and moving them? Back of the head gives you important information about structure, obviously. You can really see the skull in there. Um, It somehow rounds out, I can't can't even articulate some of these things well, but it rounds out some of my understanding of the shape of the head. Is it long this way? Is it long this way? But much more than structural information, it says volumes about personality and attitude. There is just so much in the way a head sits on shoulders. If you just look around the room, some people are kind of more like this, some people are a lot more easy, and 
and you, you get a lot of that from the front, but somehow when you're not distracted by facial features and are looking at, at a photo or even better video of someone from the back, it, it's, it's revelatory. It has. YouTube has YouTube both very much helped and, and uh, made more difficult my research process because there's no end to the amount of material I can find, but a lot of it is it's poor quality video. It's, it's low resolution for the web, so there's lots of it, but I can't see the kind of detail that I really need to see with my very detailed style. So it's great, but I still go to digging through magazines, look, you know, in some ways I have to look harder for good reference material. But in terms of, you know, low quality, I'll use all of it. Low quality video, sometimes, well, like the uh, Salazar uh, piece, uh, there's a wonderful video exhibition here. I don't know where it is, just an installation of uh, Conan O'Brien, Jay Leno, and, and David Letterman on the first floor, giving their monologues. It's uh, footage of them compressed so that you just see these fuzzy shapes and you know exactly who they are. So low quality video can be very helpful because it helps, it, it keeps you from being distracted by details. And you get, but you have to use that for obtaining a sense of the person, not for any real uh, graphic information. Yeah. Occasionally. Uh, that's not, that's usually not. Usually I'm, you know. Does he ever do that in person? That's what I was <laughs> Yeah. Would you prefer to? The, the, pardon? Would you prefer to? I would always prefer to see someone in person, um, even for a short time, because it makes sense of all the two-dimensional images and, and remote things that I'm looking at online. Uh, but, you know, so, Celebrity schedules don't usually allow it, and publication deadlines don't usually allow it. So I've had to become a detective uh, sifting through what I can find. And that's an interesting thing, too. There's an art to that where you... Uh, and I'm preparing a film for the Portrait Gallery's website, which will go up in January, I think. And I talk a lot about uh, looking at a face and looking at reference material like a detective looks at a crime scene. You have to say, you know what, this is just... This is a camera smile. This is not going to be helpful. This is a crappy photo, but look, look at the little clue I have over here about complexion or something like that. So. Jones, I'm curious, too, when you're um, completing an editorial assignment, do you ever do more than one version of the, uh, of the individual? Yeah, I often do several uh, versions, and that would be in the, mostly in the sketch stage. Mm -hmm. And so the... the the hope is that you get it approved without too much trouble, and then you can go to the final. I actually brought my preliminary work on this, so I can answer that question better by showing you. Again, I'm going to horrify Wendy by <laughs> manhandling some fragile sketches here. Um, at least I don't keep them in corrugated cardboard anymore. Yeah, sure, hold this one up. You'll recognize this one. Um, these, you know, I have to say, these things are never, are never intended to be, let's step back, Wendy. It, it, these are never intended to be seen, and so I don't really treat them with all that much respect. I use tissue paper, uh, getting to your question, because I'll do a rough drawing, 
and none of these are actually particularly rough, but I'll do different versions. And if there's something in one that I like, I'll put a fresh piece of tissue over it and then trace over it, keep the parts that I like. Sometimes I'll turn it backwards and say, you know, I like that, you know, I like him looking this way more for whatever reason. Oh, thanks. Okay. But yeah, I often will do several different versions, poses, expressions. Uh, Greenspan never gives a huge range of expressions. <laughs> it's always some version of this. This one um, is not as detailed as the other ones, but it actually does, I think it looks a little more like him somehow. He, he has this M-shaped mouth, which I eliminated for the reasons I mentioned. But, uh, uh, the sketches, no, never, unless they've commissioned it. Doing it, I, most of my work is for, for publication, so I would be reviewing it with art directors and, God forbid, editors. Um, more and more, that's the case. But how much input do they have in the direction you take? And, thanks. And, you know, thanks. How much? How much uh, input do the editors and art directors have into it? Well, that, that really depends on, on the final use and, and the particular place that's assigning it. Uh, they have more and more because, and, and it reflects um, the way society has changed. People are very worried about offending anyone. And people have become so politically correct that, you know, I, I did a drawing of Martin Scorsese for Rolling Stone a few years ago, and there were three hairs coming out of the end of his nose, which he actually has. He's a, Sicil <laughs> he has a, he's a Sicilian guy that has tufts of hair. And they, they loved the piece, but when it appeared in print, those three hairs were gone. And I thought, what in the world is this? And it, this, is the, this is what it's come to. Someone thought that the director of Mean Streets was so thin-skinned that he would object to three, this little trio of hairs on the end of his nose. But, so editors have more and more say in, in how things are depicted. Um, and it's, it's, it makes things more difficult. I had things published uh, many years ago that would never be published now, not because they were so outrageous, but because people just are more fearful. There's an art director here, a couple of art directors here. That's true, right? When we did the Paul? <laughs> yeah. I do, I do remember that. that is, there's people that work for Greenspan who were pretty famous would be offended. Yeah, the other, the other Federal Reserve people. Yeah. Everyone, yeah, that's right. Your editor got cold feet and pulled them. Right. He yeah. was, the lobbyist hadn't said anything. Was I paid for those 10? Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> Sean, have you ever done a self-portrait? I've done self-portraits, yeah. <laughs> That's true. There is. Yeah. Are there, are there drawings that you get a pleasure out of doing, and are there drawings that by the end you're just so tired of doing it, you'd rather do something else? And are there, do you have examples of who you did that sort of made mm. ecstatic at the end, and the other you're ready just to sort of get rid of it? That's a really good question. And the honest answer is, by the time I'm done with any drawing, I am so done with it. Because the, the way I, by the time I get to a finished drawing, 
I cannot see it objectively. There's so much has gone into it. Um, and I don't have a quick style, so I'm spending a minimum of, you know, I, I mean, I've cranked things out in a day because deadlines required it. But, you know, when I'm taking the kind of time I want, I'll spend two to three days on something. And by the time I'm finished with it, all I can see when I look at it is all of the things that didn't work out the way I had hoped. So to me, it's just a map back into what went wrong. So, you know, I guess I can answer that question in two ways. One is, in terms of the project, I dislike everything that I'm working on by the time it's done. And I can't wait to start the next one. And the, the nice thing about that is I do generate enthusiasm for the next assignment because I think I'm going to redeem myself. <laughs> but the other way to answer that question is, yeah, there are some subjects who are just a lot more fun to draw. Um, you know, just for, maybe for obvious reasons. They're just much more interesting faces. They're much more... Uh, there's more of a, uh, there's just more meat there. You can really get into a, a, a depth of likeness that's not possible with other people. Yeah. Have Actually, you ever, have you ever had a subject come to you to do one? Uh, yeah, sure. Yep. And one that's more of a caricature of themselves? Yep. Mm hmm. Sure. Uh, sure. Uh, I did a, Ray Romano commissioned a drawing of, the cast of Everybody Loves Raymond, which was his gift. He made prints, and had, that was his gift to the uh, cast members um, at the taping of the last show. I'm trying to think of others. I'm kind of, kind of going blank on it. Was that sketch, or was that you just were... Oh, no, he approved that sketch. We had, he was my art director. <laughs> it, went, it went pretty well. Did Catherine ever approach you? I... Uh, well, she wanted an image that I had made of her, and then I approached her later to come and draw her from life, which to the, sh the horror of her staff, she accepted. As they were, at that point, she was very old, and they were trying to keep people away from her just to protect her from, well, you know, from gawkers. And I wrote her a note which charmed her, and she sent, sent back a note with her personal uh, phone number. Yeah. Anyway. I thought those drawings, the ones I saw from it, were some of the nicest stuff I've ever seen you do, actually. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. Really, really nice. I mean, you captured her in a way I've rarely seen you do. Well, and that's partly because of seeing people live. You know, that really does make a difference. There's a dimension there that, uh, you know, you get, these things are hard to articulate, but... You know, you get a sense of the spirit of the person. We were talking earlier about how certain people and certain celebrities just kind of exude something. They emanate something. And Catherine Hepburn was someone like that. And I think I did capture a bit of, of the spirit of the person. Um, not because I'm such a brilliant artist, but because it, it, it was part of the mix. And somehow that gets, a little bit of that gets captured on paper. And, and not even, not consciously, not that, oh, you know, I'm now... I'm now capturing the spirit of the person. It doesn't work that way, but it somehow floats in there. Um, you tried to draw the characters. You showed like, the sketches and kind of form of whiteness, and you tried different things. When you have a finished drawing, and you're going to give it to final, do you do any kind of color studies or something? Like, how do you figure out how to warm up it? Mm -hmm. How do you know? Do you know ahead of time what color you're going to make the shirt and the stripes? <laughs> 
Well, some, sometimes, I, sometimes that's planned out and sometimes that isn't. Um, you know, it's funny you mention that. This, the striped shirt is the one thing about this I really dislike because I don't think he ever wore a shirt like that, and I cannot remember why I did that. I find it very distracting because it tends to be the first thing you see. Um, I think I probably wanted him to look kind of casual. I, I doubt that I made this up. I probably saw him in a thick striped shirt, but I, I think it's a bad choice, actually, because it, it calls too much attention to itself, and a lot of the other stuff's fairly subtle. And, but, you know, it does, on the other hand, in, in defense of the striped shirt, uh, it, does, it does create kind of an interesting counterbalance to this pattern of the cards fanned out. So, you know, but there's a lot going on in here graphically that I just, I just think it's a little bit of a hot spot in this composition. Well, which maybe, maybe that's part of it. I think I probably, I also like visual echoes and repeated patterns. I probably like the way it subtly, you know, brought your eye down from this very strong uh, shape of the bow of the glasses. You know, and, and Paul, a lot of this stuff is not, it's conscious, semi-conscious, or unconscious. And to look back at it later and recreate it, I can't even really remember exactly what was, but I, I know that they were, at some level they were decisions. You know, in, in a lot of the magic of this stuff happens, especially capturing a likeness, it happens in the sketch stage. And by the time I get here, this is the easy part. I'm applying a style and it takes, it's not that there aren't decisions here, but this is hours and hours and hours of work and it becomes like meditation really. I, my my brain really shuts off. A lot of times I can look at these drawings and remember many years later what music was playing when I was painting them. And that's, that speaks to a very strange, mysterious thing that I think is wonderful. Have you ever think much about the fact that you, you can start your drawings with pencils yeah. and very loose? Yeah. 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 Have you ever thought about you know you're, you have two extremes there going on? Yeah. Now it's true. Some of my sketches are very scribbly, and this stuff gets can be downright uptight, and that actually is the the Achilles heel of my style. It can be very anal retentive looking, and um, it speaks to diametric uh, parts of my own personality. Um, you know, style is an interesting subject. It. it you know, it's very, it's very revealing and it's very uh, personal. Um, I'm not sure I'm answering your question. But. Yeah. Well, I can, you know, just as a practical matter, when I'm searching for a likeness, uh, I'm just working. I'm not worrying about if it looks like the person or not. I'm just, it's very instinctual. It's very kind of primal. This, this is a bit odd, but a lot of times when I'm sketching, not when I'm painting, when I'm sketching, I'll find that I start taking my clothes off. And a lot of times I'll end up sketching in my underwear. And it's, it just happens. It just happens. And, but there's something very scribbly and kind of a, uh, very physical about that process. Uh, and then as it gets closer, this becomes more refined, more refined, more refined. Um, I will. <laughs> I will not. You know, the color for me, if you were talking, separates the, the head from 
-hmm. It drew the difference between what he is as a man and what he does as a man. That's when you were talking about how mm -hmm. it's the dichotomy yep. there. Mm -hmm. Where on the other one with Greenspan, he's the one-dimensional guy. You know, uh -huh. his, his collar kind of draws it together where the other separates him. I don't know. Oh, that's interesting. Uh-huh. Well, you know, everyone is, we're all pretty complex packages, and, and obviously I'm bringing my own, you know, good or weak powers of observation to these individual individuals that I'm drawing. So, you know, it's a, a combination of objective observation, my own filters through which I'm seeing them, and then uh, my own limitations as an artist, too. You know, people always think style is all about your strengths. Well, style, I think, is mostly about your limitations. Uh, someone had a question earlier today about how I arrived at this style as a way of working. Well, I didn't arrive at it. It kind of found me. I don't think anybody endeavors to work in a particular style, or if they do, they end up somewhere else. This style grew out of my own uh, lack of confidence um, with, with painting. I, I've been at this so long that I, was, I started out on staffs of newspapers before color printing in newspapers. And I used to do black and white ink wash paintings because I didn't need to paint in color. There was no color reproduction. Well, when newspapers shifted to color in the 80s, um, I was asked to do color paintings. Well, I... I was afraid I was going to screw it up, so I devised the style of working in very light washes of colored ink and watercolor so that if I made a mistake, it wouldn't show. It would be correctable. Well, now I can, you know, I really can rock it through this style pretty darn quickly, but uh, this style grew out of my own uh, discomfort. So it plays, it, it really is a way of compensating for my weaknesses. Are you ever in the presence of Oh sure, yeah. Yeah, in the in the presence of as a, you mean even collecting photographic information of them, or do you mean in the presence? Well, it happens in both cases. Uh, usually, in the presence of somebody, it's it's very helpful and informative. I, I would never say that's uh, a difficult situation, and I don't really get nervous. I'm not starstruck, so I don't really get nervous in those situations. And that's a big ob that can be a big obstacle, but. Uh, the much more common for me is, you know, having 25 pictures on my desk and a video running. And in those cases, uh, it can be very challenging to penetrate through to something because you've got to sleuth through the photos like a detective and try to find these things. Um, the other part of that is that in a way, this is an obvious point, but I don't think people realize just how much, how, how much it goes on. We're not completely aware of how prepackaged and how distorted the celebrity images are that we view. We think we know these people because they're so familiar to us, but we're mostly seeing what they want us to see. And it is so stage-managed, even the so-called spontaneous or candid photo shoots are generally very, very managed. You know, think about this. 
you know, we've all seen paparazzi shots of a celebrity on the beach, or for some reason they're often on a balcony, you know, those shots, and they don't have makeup, cellulite hanging out, you know. And your reaction is, oh my God, she's sick, or he doesn't look like himself. That's a very strange reaction because, yes, they look that, those people are looking exactly like themselves. We're just not used to seeing a real person there. And so that, that uh, gets to just how much the persona has replaced the person. And that's what we recognize. It's an interesting thing. So it's hard to, it is hard to get, you know, and you even think you're getting a little bit past the persona. And it can't, it's not always clear, but... You generally can tell when you're looking at a photo or someone's in front of you if, if you can tell what's authentic. Yeah. Well, if you take the time to think about it, maybe. But a lot of people don't even take the time to think about it. You see one thing in your eye. Or stop thinking about it and let it just sink in, too. You know? Sometimes these things just get in. Okay. Caricature, yeah, that's a good, good question. The, the, the question is, what, um, where do I see caricature going in the future? Um, and is it going to be replaced by certain other things? Caricature has always been one of those things. It seems like it's been around for a very, very long time. I mean, you know, da Vinci was a great caricaturist. Monet was a great caricaturist. It, but it, it kind of ebbs and flows in its, its visibility and its popularity. Uh, you know, right now it's in a strange place. There's a lot of really good caricature being done. A lot of it's not out there except on the web. And there, the, the, the way caricatures have usually been employed in recent times is in, primarily in publication. And publications are imperiled now, and what's next just isn't clear. So I don't really know how to answer that question. I don't like the thought of becoming, you know, caricature becoming a phone app. Uh, but caricature will be out there as long as there are, uh, you know, interesting people uh, to, to, to observe. It's a spectator sport, but whether it's sort of broadcast popularly, that really ebbs and flows. We'll caricature see. Caricature will be out there is a good way to end, John. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing. <laughs>